Are you ready for an all-American road trip? Coming up, Craig Pittman keeps us up to date on the ever-changing scene in Florida. It looks like some of the state's endangered wildlife is starting to recover. I'm a big fan of alligators. They are like the crazy uncle that shows up on your doorstep at 4 in the morning and knocks on the door with her tail. Jim Hinckley is working to restore Route 66 as an important part of the nation's 20th century history. He especially likes driving the parts that pass through Santa Fe and Albuquerque. It's an absolutely beautiful stretch of roadway. The history is, is palpable. And Sarah Val tells us what she discovered on a road trip to the sites of assassinated U.S. presidents. The only thing crazier than wanting to kill a president is wanting to be president. I mean, just think about the amount of egomania it takes to want that job and to think you could do that job. See the USA in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Have you ever driven into a time warp? Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll look at how the old U.S. Route 66 preserves the dreams of 20th century America. And we'll explore Florida for visitors and residents alike beyond the theme parks. Plus, Sarah Val traveled to places associated with the first three American presidents to be assassinated in office. She takes us to explore the deaths of Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley as she turns historical tourism into an assassination vacation. That's a little later in the hour. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Florida, with 20 million residents, gets nearly 100 million visitors a year. It's amazing. For many Europeans, Florida is their only experience in the United States, and they come back again and again. As a native-born son, Tampa Bay Times writer Craig Pittman knows Florida from top to bottom. He knows its wonders, and he certainly knows its quirks. In fact, he's written a book called Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. And he wrote it to explain the sunshine state to the rest of us. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. 20 million residents and, and about 100 million visitors a year? Yes, and all of them on the, on the road at the same time. What's it like to live in a state that's just inundated with tourists? It's part of what makes us such an interesting place to live. I mean, you know, we've got 20 million people here, and we kind of know our way around, and then we get all the 100 million tourists, <laughs> many of whom don't know where they're going. They're trying to drive the way they drive back home, which doesn't necessarily fit in with the way everybody's driving where they're, where they're visiting. You see a lot of bumper stickers on Florida cars that say, we're not all on vacation. Now, having said that, there are an awful lot of people who have moved to Florida specifically to take advantage of some of the things that attract our tourists. They come here for our award-winning state park system. Mm -hmm. They come here to paddle on our many, many waterways in their kayaks and canoes. Mm -hmm. There's a huge paddle boarding explosion going on these days mm -hmm. where there's a park down at the end of the street near my house where anytime the, the wind is picked up just a little bit, there are at least 30 people down there doing kiteboarding, which is quite amazing to watch. Is the climate considered all in all a plus or a minus? Oh, it's a big plus. It's, oh, yeah. It's hot yeah, and the, muggy, but generally it's it's better to have nice weather all year long and some hot and mugginess than rainy weather all year long. Is, is that kind of Well, a, and, and snow. I mean, you know, that's one of the, I always tell people that's one of the reasons you see so many weird stories coming out of Florida is we're out doing weird stuff all year long. We're not cooped up <laughs> inside because of blizzards for part of the year. So that's why we don't have so many crazy things going on. We're inside yeah. getting out of the snow and out of the rain. Yeah. Exactly. You're in there shivering trying to keep warm, whereas we're out, <laughs> you, don't, you know, yeah. we're out chasing each other with machetes. Oh, so. man. Now, Florida. Florida is huge with Europeans. I mean, so many yes. Europeans, they've been to the United States a couple of times, and I ask them, where'd you go? Florida. What are the Europeans after in Florida? 
Well, a lot of them are heading for the theme parks. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, that's, that's obviously the huge draw mm-hmm. for those folks. But you do see some that are out doing the, the natural stuff, you know, taking mm-hmm. advantage of our ecotourism. We have a huge draw in our Great Florida Birding Trail, which mm-hmm. attracts people who are interested in striking yeah. things off on their life list because Florida is a, a major migratory path for birds from all over the world. And so that really engages an awful lot of them. It's also a migratory pathway for the monarch butterflies that are heading to Mexico. A lot of them go through the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, so you'll see people from all over the world okay. flock there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Craig Pittman, and Craig's book is O oh, Florida, and we're just getting an update on the Sunshine State. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Carol's calling in from Bel Air in Florida. Carol, thanks for your Hi. call. Hi, Craig. I live uh, in the Tampa Bay area, and I wondered what you would suggest as a vacation in Florida for Floridians that is not the resort areas, not the parks. I'm talking about Disney and Universal, those types of parks. Right. There are a couple of them that would come to mind. Uh, one that I would suggest, I, I always love going to the Sanibel Captiva area. I think those beaches are absolutely gorgeous, and uh, you're visiting a place that is famous for its seashells. Uh, in fact, so famous that they call it the Sanibel Stoop when the tourists are bending down to pick up seashells. And that's the area where Anne Morrow Lindbergh actually wrote her book, Gift from the Sea. Mm. She was so inspired by the, the shells that she found there and by the, the tranquility that she found. Another place that I, I really enjoy visiting is uh, St. Augustine. There's an awful lot of history there. You can go and see the, the Spanish Fort, the lighthouse. Uh, there's a wonderful pirate museum there if you have kids. My kids loved visiting the pirate museum and shooting off the cannon. And it's a really interesting place to live and to visit, and uh, they have an annual uh, Florida Heritage Book Festival that I highly recommend as well. So, I mean, those are a couple of ideas that I would I would recommend. If, like me, you're kind of into the odd and offbeat kind of stuff, I'm checking off things on my, my Florida bucket list, and I just checked off one the other day. I went to Lakeland in Central Florida and visited the campus of Florida Southern, which has the most Frank Lloyd Wright-designed buildings in the world. They have 12 of them all in one spot. Wow. And, yeah, and they're quite beautiful, and it's a, it's a really interesting place to visit and see how things work. Uh, some of the things he designed, the technology wasn't advanced enough to build and make it work, and now it is. So mm-hmm. you're actually seeing things that Wright envisioned that he didn't himself did not live to see. Good advice there, Craig. Carol, I hope that gives you some ideas. It does. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. And Ed in Burlington, Ontario, in Canada, has emailed us, and he writes, We're planning a vacation in the Daytona Beach area. What attractions can uh, you recommend in Volusia County? Uh, Well, of course, Daytona Beach is best known as the home of NASCAR. Uh, That's where it was founded in 1947 by the France family, and it is still there. It's still a major economic driver for that community. But also, uh, if you're not into, you know, watching people turn left and then turn left again and then turn left one more time, you might want to check out the parks in that area. There are some beautiful beach state parks in that area, and they are definitely worth going to see. The area to the north of there is also quite lovely. Uh, and so those sort of attractions to me might be better than, you know, going and inhaling a car exhaust. But if that's your <laughs> you thing, sound I, like don't, a big I don't, don't want to put it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my uncle was a was a stock car racer when I was a okay. kid. And I went and watched quite a bit of it then. And, yeah. man, that was loud. Maybe I'll just stick to baseball, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> hey, uh, Patrick uh, from Indiantown in Florida has emailed us. And Patrick uh, writes... He was raised in South Florida, having lived overseas for many years. He returned, and uh, and then he noticed lots of changes uh, in the 10 years that he was gone. He said, <laughs> Miami is much more interesting than it was before. Definitely try to come for Art Week in December. So yes. that's an interesting thought. If you left for 10 years and you came back, you'd see some changes. How has Miami become a more interesting place? 
he mentioned the the uh, the Art Week, the Art Basel Week. That's a huge attraction. Another one is the Miami Book Fair International, which is a week long mm. book fair uh, that attracts authors from all over the world and mm. big names. And it's it, they have a huge kids section as well. So that's in November every year. So the weather is you don't have to worry about hurricanes <laughs> yeah. usually well, by then. Yeah. The weather in the fall and spring in Florida is when it's at its most beautiful, and that's so that's a great time to walk around at a book fair and. and you know, listen to authors and, and just enjoy the, the scenery and so forth. But yeah, if you leave Florida for 10 years and come back, you're going to see massive, huge mm. changes. Another Florida native I talked to who I quote in the book, uh, a guy named Dexter Filkins, he said, you know, growing up in Florida is like being the kid in the, that movie, The Sixth Sense, because you see things that nobody else can see. Mm. You see things that used to be here and they're not there anymore. Craig Pittman was born in Pensacola. And while muckraking for his college newspaper at Troy State in Alabama, the dean labeled Craig the most destructive force on campus. Today, he writes for the Tampa Bay Times, and his latest book is Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. His website is craigpittman.com. Craig, you write about gin clear springs, sugar sand beaches, cotton candy sunsets, it sounds like there's just a wonderland for anybody that wants to enjoy the idyllic sort of uh, environment. Also, people want to go to the, the Everglades and the great natural uh, sites in the interior. If you want to go to the Everglades and uh, recognize that it's a fragile environment, how can you visit the Everglades and not have a negative footprint on the environment? Well, there are a couple of ways. Uh, there's a, a regular tram ride that takes along the, uh, it goes along the area they call Shark Valley, and that's a pretty good thing where you can, a uh, ranger, takes you through and points out, uh, you know, what you're seeing, that kind of thing. There are a number of attractions offering airboat rides. I don't necessarily endorse that. I've taken a few of those, and it's very noisy, and, uh, you know, obviously you're scaring off any wildlife you might see. To the extent that one airboat captain actually got in trouble, he was feeding the alligators, trying to get them to come up close, mm. and then one of them took his hand off, mm. so literally biting the hand that was feeding it. Uh, I don't really necessarily recommend that, but there are other ways to go about seeing that area uh, that are a little gentler. You can bike and hike along the, the Shark River Trail. Uh, there was a camping area called Flamingo I, that was closed for a while. I think it has reopened once again. If it hasn't, it will be soon. So those are all, you know, less intensive ways to go. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing I like to recommend to people, uh, it, it's not the big name that Everglades is, but right next door is the Big Cypress National Preserve. Oh, yeah. And there's a, a swamp walk. There's an artist who lives there, a guy named Clyde Butcher, who takes these beautiful large format black and white photos. We, we call him the Ansel Adams of Florida. Mm -hmm. And his studio is right there in the town in Ochopee, and he leads swamp walks from his studio out through the Big Cypress. Wow. And uh, that I, I was good. It's a wonderful experience, and I actually went on one where Clyde was there, the superintendent of Big Cypress National Park was there, and several other folks. It's an experience I, I will not soon forget. We're just about out of time. I want to cover a few more points. I've got four animals I'm curious about. I'll just mention okay. them, and you give me a response. Pythons. Pythons are the uh, the invasive species that everybody loves to talk about, and they just caught a 17-footer in the Everglades. If you're not in the Everglades, you probably don't have to worry about them. Panthers. Panthers are our state animal. They are the only puma species east of the, the Mississippi. In 1995, there were only 20 of them. They've managed to bring it back to the point where there are about 200 now. Oh, that's good news. Manatees. Manatees uh, were on the endangered species list. They have been moved down to threatened because there are now about 6,000 of them, but they are not out of the woods by any means. In fact, the way they identify one manatee from the other is by the pattern of boat scars on their backs. And alligators. 
alligators were on the original endangered species list in 1972, and they bounced back to the point where we actually have an alligator hunting season now. I'm a big fan of alligators. They are like the crazy uncle that shows up on your doorstep at four in the morning and knocks on the door with a tail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they do all kinds of crazy stuff, but they're battling the pythons in the Everglades, so I'm really rooting for them. Well, that's man. good. And is there an industry of alligator meat and alligator skin, alligator whatever? Yes, yeah. there absolutely is. And uh, in fact, the state of Florida, the Wildlife Commission just got done running a two-year, very elaborate sting to catch a ring of alligator poachers, alligator egg poachers, who were stealing eggs from the alligator farms, where the state actually ran its own alligator farm as an undercover operation and caught these guys on film and so forth. They're still somewhat protected uh, as far as you're not allowed to possess one. Uh So whenever you see those stories about the guy who, you know, picks up an alligator and slings it through the Wendy's drive-thru, he's in big (laughs) trouble for doing that. Big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Craig Pittman, thanks so much for joining us, and best wishes with your book, O Florida, and your writing for the Tampa Bay Times. Thank you so much. It's been suggested that Robert Todd Lincoln, the president's firstborn son, was a jinx. We'll learn why when Sarah Val tells us how historical tourism can show you things you never knew. That's in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. First, let's hear how restoration efforts are picking up steam along the old U.S. Route 66. Explore the Mother Road from the Midwest prairies to the desert southwest. With us next, we're at 877-333-RICK. America's most famous road trip has taken on legendary status, even though most of the two-lane route was replaced by interstate highways years ago. But Jim Hinckley believes there's something special about the old Route 66, something that's worth preserving. As the old song tells you, it starts in Chicago winds through 2,400 miles of prairie farmland, small towns, and desert landscapes to its terminus at the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica. Jim joins us now to update us on how the Mother Road is being revived with the help of state, tribal, and National Park Service efforts, and why what he calls America's longest small town continues to attract motorists from around the world looking for that air-streamed time capsule of tail fins, neon signs, and a place to find a good bowl of chili along the open road. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. So give us a little context here. Uh, Why was the Route 66 built? When did that happen, and what did the route mean to the United States when it first opened? The highway was certified, designated in uh, 1926, one of the first U.S. highways at that time that the U.S. highway system was created. But from its inception, Route 66 has always had the best press and publicity. It's really unique because it links so many of the nation's early road systems. For example, in New Mexico, the uh, pre-1937 alignment of Route 66 is pretty much laid right over the Santa Fe Trail. Mm. And in Illinois, a lot of the road follows the Pontiac Trail, which was a Native American trade route and was used um, by the British explorers. It was in the 19th century that we had the train line lacing together America, and then with the advent of cars, I guess it just made sense to have a a highway system that did the same thing? Yeah, in the southwest, specifically uh, Arizona, you had a Native American trade route that connected the Hopi villages with the tribes in California. And when some of the uh, early explorers, like Father Garces in 1776, came across that part of the country, they followed those trade routes. Lieutenant Beale came through with his camel caravan in the 1850s, 
And then the railroad followed him, and then the National Old Trails Road, and hmm. eventually Route 66. Ha. Now, that's all history, and I'm all over that, but for a lot of people, it's sort of a popular icon of the ultimate road trip. Where did that mystique come from? How did Route 66 become such a big deal in popular culture? It's an international phenomenon today, and one of the most amazing things about Route 66 is that officially the highway doesn't exist anymore. It was uh, decertified in 1985. In uh, February of 1927, Cyrus Avery put together a group called the U.S. Highway 66 Association, and they started a branding campaign marketing Route 66 as the main street of America. Hmm. And then we had uh, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. He talked about it being the mother road. Nat King Cole wrote a little song about getting your kicks on Route 66. Mm. And in the early 60s, we had Todd and Buzz in their Corvette traveling the road on television every week. Boy, if a road wanted to get famous, they had all the ingredients, didn't they? Yes. So it's nicknamed America's Longest Small Town. How so? The entire highway has become a living, breathing time capsule with an overlay of Disneyland. And the towns along Route 66, they almost appear as quirky neighborhoods in a long, small town. They're all linked together by one common factor, which is a love and passion for Route 66. Fifty years ago, I could see that, you know, when you had the, the old Chevys weren't old Chevys. They were today's Chevys. Today, the reality is there's going to be more efficient and faster roads and overpasses and sleepy towns being bypassed altogether. To what degree does the nostalgia survive in this modern time? Do you have to make a point to get it, or are you going to find it if you're just taking the direct route? Both. If you're not into nostalgia and simpler things, Route 66 is not going to have any appeal at all. Mm -hmm. But if you like the non-generic world, if you like uh, sitting down in a cafe one family owned since 1927, and having a 65-cent cup of coffee or having the owner stop by to talk to you. Mm. And now there's an international dynamic that's really fascinating on the road because you can be sitting and having pie in, in Texas Panhandle, and here will be farmers, and here will be some uh, motorcyclists from the Netherlands that have uh, been dreaming of traveling Route 66. I just love that, that it, it attracts so many people, and it does have that international lure. I mean, Germans especially just love to drive. And for a German, a dream vacation is to come to America and rent a big car and do Route 66. There's uh, Route 66 associations now that are active in about a dozen countries. There are tour companies in five countries that specialize in Route 66 tours. In 2016, the first European festival took place in Ofterdingen, Germany. This year, there'll be a Route 66 festival in Zlin, the Czech Republic. There's actually international groups that come here in an organized tour to experience it? Yes. Uh, there's Route 66 associations in mm -hmm. Japan and uh, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Netherlands, Belgium, Brazil. And there's also tour companies themselves that specialize exclusively in Route 66 tours. They operate out of uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Brazil, Czechoslovakia. We're getting ready to motor down the old Route 66 right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Jim Hinckley, works with the Route 66 Economic Development Committee, and he's the author of America's Longest Small Town. Jim's book profiles the historic sites and colorful people you can encounter on any part of that classic road trip from Chicago to L.A. There is more online at jimhinckleysamerica.com. 
Michael's listening in from Knoxville, Tennessee, and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Michael, have you driven Route 66? I haven't, but it's something that I really uh, hope to do someday. And actually, my friend and I hope to do it by bike. We're both uh, avid baseball fans, and we enjoy cycling. So we're wanting to kind of book in the portion of a trip down Route 66 from Chicago to St. Louis and, and maybe catch a couple of Major League Baseball games and see some historic sites along the way. That sounds fun. Uh, Jim, any, any thoughts for biking parts of Route 66? Yes, uh, the Adventure Cycling Association has designated uh, Route 66 a bicycle corridor, and there's quite a few folks that are bicycling the road now. There's a couple tour companies that are doing that. And uh, recently, uh, Zenik Jurisic from the Czech Republic uh, bicycled Route 66 as part of a documentary. But you mentioned uh, an interest in baseball. You might check out Commerce, Oklahoma on Route 66, where uh, Mickey Mantle grew up. Hmm. Oh, wow, that's a great suggestion. I think it's a little outside of our bike trip, but I think uh, it's certainly worth a road trip because, you know, that's what Route 66 is really all about is the Great American Highway. So that's a great suggestion. So you got, you got Mickey Mantle's place. You've also got uh, some other sites along the route, Jim. There's actually a museum, right, in, in Pontiac? Oh, yeah. Pontiac is an amazing community. They've harnessed to the Route 66 Renaissance as a catalyst for revitalization. And it's really dramatic. The Society of Gilders has opened a museum there. The uh, official museum for Pontiac Oakland Automobiles is there. Uh, the Illinois Route 66 Museum is there. In Pontiac, is that in Illinois? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you got plenty of sites to see there. Also, there are some towns that are just sort of time warps. Uh, you write in your book with some beautiful pictures about Cuba, Missouri, sort of a Norman Rockwell village. Yes, most definitely. We we just really enjoy Cuba, especially during Cuba Fest, the third weekend in October. The town is really amazing. Just one example, they have a shoe store there that's been in business since 1953, the same family, and they still maintain a, and have a cobbler on staff to repair boots and leather goods. And they've got a gas station apparently that goes all the way back to 1930. Yeah, a gas station garage complex that recently opened is the four-way restaurant. And really a delightful blending of traditional American foods with uh, a twist, like lamb burgers with a nice Greek sauce. All right. Well, hey, Michael, have a good time biking and uh, then grab a car and do the rest of it uh, on four wheels. Absolutely. Sounds like we'll be well fed along the way as well. So that's great. (laughs) All right. Happy travels. Jim Hinckley is known in Europe as Mr. Route 66 for the historical preservation work he promotes to tourism associations there, as well as in Australia and across America. Jim and his wife chronicle the highway's colorful nostalgia and historic attractions in the book America's Longest Small Town. Jim's also written the big book of car culture about American pop culture's love affair with the automobile, and he's the co-author of Ghost Towns of the West. Paul's on the line from Mansfield, Texas. Paul, what's your story with Route 66? I traveled three and a half states and would always uh, travel the interstate, but then I figured out that the small towns off the interstate, off of the old Route 66 area, were the places that you could always find the best diners. Traveling, I would focus on the smaller towns uh, west of Dallas and uh, would go all the way out to uh, Scottsdale, Phoenix, Tucson, out in that area. There's a lot of small towns still surviving out there off of what used to be Route 66 and now is all interstate. 
And I would suggest people to uh, definitely get off the interstates and go into these small towns because they're, they're very unique. And Paul, are you speaking from uh, experience as a vacation road tripper, or were you uh, on the road w- with your work? Well, I was traveling on the road with a clothing company, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's a working experience out there on the road. That would be nice when you are on the road for your work to just know where you can find the most characteristic uh, experiences and shops and diners yep. and cute little towns instead of the, the big modern uh, strip mall kind of places. The small towns are still surviving, and the best Diners and restaurants are always in those smaller towns when you get off the interstate highways. Do you have a particular favorite you'd recommend from your experience? I liked them out in West Texas, uh, New Mexico. Let's see, I think Benson, Arizona was an area off of uh, Route 66, if I remember right. Uh-huh. So really, I think it was more the Arizona and New Mexico areas that were uh, highly interesting and uh, enjoyable places to travel. But the bottom line is get off the big modern uh, interstate and get on the old road. Yes, uh-huh. That was the, the fun areas to go to. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Paul. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Nice talking to you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jim Hinckley. His book is about Route 66, America's Longest Small Town. Jim, I understand that you are really passionate about preserving uh, Route 66 as part of our culture. And I, I would just think it's it's really threatened by petty souvenir hunters that want to take down anything that's old and nostalgic and by development and, and by people who just want to be more efficient and make more money. What is your take on the plight of Route 66, and will it be around in 50 years? Well, we're already making plans for the Highway Centennial as a national celebration. Also, with the uh, Route 66 the Road Ahead Partnership, there's a movement uh, through Congress at this point to have it designated a National Historic Trail. With that said, the most endangered aspects of Route 66 right now are the authentic motels and auto courts and the bridges. Uh, over mm. 95% of the original bridges are scheduled for demolition or replacement. Ooh. And uh, that, that just changes the incomplete idiosyncratic nature of the highway to lose those bridges. But, I mean, what can you do if they need to be demolished? It's probably because they're no longer safe. Well, as a multitude, now that there's a push for bicycle tourism, the bridges can re- be rehabbed for that. Mm-hmm. Some of the bridges, like uh, Lake Overholzer Bridge in Oklahoma City, they've managed to preserve that, connecting two parks along, uh, and they put their newer highway on the other side of the bridge. Right. A lot of communities aren't aware of the economic potential of the Route 66 Renaissance, but the communities that do, it's really quite amazing what's happening. People from all over the world are investing in old motels and diners and mm-hmm. uh, renovating them. The businesses that have survived, uh, like the Ariston Cafe, one family owned since the 20s, same location since 1936, they've managed to thrive quite nicely in the era of Renaissance. Well, this is something that I think uh, people can contribute to just by the way they consume. And as you travel Route 66, you could stay in small, family-run, old-school motels, and you could eat at the characteristic diners. Would that make a difference? Oh, most definitely. And it's an enjoyable experience. And most of the people on the road, even though they want the authentic experience, they don't want the grapes of wrath experience. So the people who are renovating these motels, they understand the need for modern conveniences, but they preserve the the basic essence of the Route 66 experience. And Route 66 has always been a highway in a state of evolution. The highway in 1930 was totally different from 1950, and the highway today is different. 
You have electric vehicle charging stations at uh, renovated gas stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world's only electric automobile museum has been established along Route 66. So it's a, it's a really evolving dynamic on the road as well. So it stretches, uh, what did we say, 2,400 miles all the way from Chicago to uh, Santa, Santa Monica. Monica. What's the very traditional kickoff of the road and, and what's the final terminus at the Pacific Ocean? Well, most of the people, uh, about 75 to 80 percent of the people start in Chicago and go west. The terminus of the highway, the original terminus was at uh, 7th and Broadway, downtown Los Angeles in the theater district. In the 1930s, it was extended into Santa Monica, and it actually ends at Olympic and Lincoln, about three blocks from the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. But who's going to stop there? And Santa Monica Pier is just three blocks away, so Santa Monica Pier has become <laughs> that, the, uh, that would be it, the yeah. traditional end of the road. Now, if you're looking for the very best of this sort of classic, old-time nostalgia, you write about a stretch of the old highway that's being saved from modern motorways that's in Kansas. It's a short stretch that goes from border to border. Uh, is that a good uh, stretch, or, or where would you be sure that people experience? Well, Kansas is kind of unique. Uh, it only has it's a 13-and-a-half-mile stretch of Route 66. Uh, the longest uninterrupted segment of Route 66 is from Seligman, Arizona, to Topak on the Colorado River, mm-hmm. almost 160 miles. Mm. And that's a real delightful time capsule. You have places like Grand Canyon Caverns and the Hackberry General Store. You have uh, the sharpest grades, the steepest curves anywhere on uh, Route 66. It's just a scenic wonder where Stevie Wonder would have trouble taking a bad photograph. <laughs> it's just, just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful area. Now, if you were going to take me on just a, one little moment of the road uh, where you're in the best mood possible, what little spot would you look for? What experience would you want me to, to be able to share with you? I would take the pre-1937 alignment of Route 66, which is basically from Tucumcari in Los, uh, Santa Rosa, New Mexico, on a loop up through Santa Fe and down to Albuquerque. It's an absolutely beautiful stretch of roadway. The history is, is palpable. You have uh, Pecos National Historic Park that's been there for over a 1,000 years. Uh, you have the Pigeon Ranch, which was a hostelry on the Santa Fe Trail, and um, a field hospital during the Battle of Glorieta Pass and the Civil ah, War. Wow. Then you have, of course, Santa Fe and Old Town Albuquerque, and with a very short detour, Las Vegas, New Mexico. That just sounds like a vacation in itself. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jim Hinckley, and Jim's written a book about U.S. Route 66. It's called America's Longest Small Town. Jim, you have worked so hard, speaking all over the country, and working tirelessly to preserve the Route 66 heritage. Why does it matter so much to you? Well, what Colonial Williamsburg was for 18th century America, Route 66 is now for 20th century America. It literally has evolved into a living time capsule. And you have so many aspects that are preserved there. From uh, 1936 to 1962, there was a book written called The Green Book for Negro Motorists. And it's kind of a bad chapter in American history, but there's some wonderful historic locations that survive that are related to this. Hmm. You have a tremendous Native American history along uh, Route 66. And you have a history of immigrants. The founder of the Ariston Cafe, he was a Greek immigrant that came here after World War I. And you have all these wonderful, this American tapestry 
It's mm. preserved along Route 66. Oh, man. Jim Hinckley, thanks for your passion for this, and, and thanks for joining us to share a, a little bit of this and give us an appreciation of America's longest small town, Route 66. You bet. Get your kicks on Route 66. You Author Sarah Vowles, known for her cheeky road trips into American history, she traveled to sites associated with the first three American presidents to be assassinated and tells us about what she calls her assassination vacation. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It was the kind of American road trip that only Sarah Val could dream up. She calls it a sort of pilgrimage, visiting the pit stops of American political murder. It includes locations in Buffalo and Washington, Alaska, and the Dry Tortugas. As she details in her book, Assassination Vacation, Sarah visited places immortalized by the assassinations of Presidents Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. She joins us now to explore the myths and popular culture that arose around them and their assassins as she ventured deep into the details of American history. Sarah, what made you interested in visiting the places of presidential assassinations, of all things? I'm always interested in that. I think it's very American, that dichotomy between tragedy and fun, you know? Yeah. And I, the first, when I first got into writing about history, I drove the Cherokee Trail of Tears with my sister as a road trip, and we're part Cherokee and our ancestors were on the Trail of Tears, and it was a, a very sad story of, you know, genocide. But every time we would stop, we would get barbecue, or then we would go to a place where a bunch of Cherokee died and cry, and then we would listen to Chuck Berry on the car radio and or I remember once you know going to one of the starting points of the Trail of Tears in Tennessee and then staying that night in the Chattanooga Choo Choo and <laughs> so it just seemed very American to me that back and the forth juxtaposition between road trip fun with your sister and eating barbecue and telling this historical tragedy oh, so let's have a barbecue let's have a souvenir let's play the game I mean it's what happened on that trip. So I think that always, from the get-go, that was kind of my M.O. of writing about history. So this, um, writing about these assassinations, I think the thing I'm always more interested in than the exact subject matter is what we in this country remember and what we don't remember and how we remember things. Is there a time, like an expiration date for um, mourning, where then you can look at it with a little lighter perspective? I think so. I mean, you'll notice that, as my publisher put it, you're writing about all the assassinations that no one cares about, meaning not like Kennedy. Kennedy, yeah. But, I mean, that was sort of purposeful because <laughs> that still requires a certain amount of tact. And, you know, when I was writing that book, his sure. daughter is still alive, his brother was still alive. And people are kind of over President Garfield's death, so there is a little more. That just took a few months, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I say, like, I'm interested in how things are remembered, I'm also interested in how they're not remembered, you know, so. Well, let's talk about that. I mean. Uh, Garfield is definitely, most people don't even know he was shot. You did a funny bit in your book about how people mix up Garfield, Harrison, and Hayes because of their sideburns and whiskers. Yeah, it's kind of that <laughs> period of presidents where they all look alike and no one remembers what they did. They do look alike. They all look like they're cast out of some sort of, what are we going to put in the back of And an we all coin? come from towns that have streets named after them. You know, like when I'm taking my walk uh, yeah, in right, my hometown, it? it's like, 
Am I going to make it to Cleveland or do I go all the way to Garfield? I think I'll you turn know, left on Hayes. It didn't Hayes. even occur to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Garfield. I mean, Garfield was a pretty insignificant president and he, there's a lot of stuff named too, after him. Yeah, I mean, in his defense, he was shot pretty quickly after he became president. He was only president. Yeah, but it took him a long time to die. I mean, it took him a few weeks to die, but really he he was killed in the first year of his presidency. Okay. So he didn't really get to accomplish much. When Lincoln died, bam, he's gone. Garfield died. He was in bed for weeks after that. Did that change how people noticed or, or remembered his, his death? Well, you know, it was the age of the telegraph. And so kind of the way we would follow a news story on um, cable news or something now, people would go to their town's newspaper or telegraph office every day to check up on the, check pres- in on, the president. on the president's status. And, you know, there would be uh, missives from his physicians about, like, there was a lot of pus today or, you know, what his temperature was or whatever. So people were, were following it. I mean, that, the interesting thing about him, you know, if you go to his farm outside of Cleveland in Mentor, Ohio, it's probably not one of those bucket list historical sites, <laughs> but you can see his death mask. And it's interesting. It's a plaster cast of his face when he died. And it's very gaunt and very thin. He must have just wasted away. He did. And you can kind of sort of see what his wife must have gone oh. through, you know, watching him die so slowly. Best-selling author Sarah Vowles travels around the United States have exposed some of the glorious conundrums of American history and what it means to be American in the 21st century. She's written six bestsellers about American history and culture, including Lafayette in the somewhat United States, The Wordy Shipmates about Puritan colonists, Unfamiliar Fishes about the American takeover of the Hawaiian Islands, and the title we're discussing right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Assassination Vacation. Sarah, Lincoln famously said, the ballot is stronger than the bullet. Well, he said that before he got shot, though. Yeah, right. Did the assassinations, did history change because of these assassinations? Um, Yeah. I mean, for one thing with Lincoln, you know, he was assassinated and then Johnson becomes president and Lincoln's plans for reconstruction kind of go up in smoke. And, you know, we're still living with the consequences of how badly that went. So John Wilkes Booth had an impact beyond just getting rid of Lincoln. Oh, for sure. He messed up the post-Civil War plan. For sure. Assuming Lincoln had it right. Yeah. And then when uh, McKinley was shot, Theodore Roosevelt became president. So, you know, McKinley was president during the... Spanish-American War, and Roosevelt was kind of one of those people in his administration sort of, you know, gunning for America to become an empire and to become a great naval power. And then when um, McKinley dies, then Roosevelt beefs up the Navy and, you know, sends the Great White Fleet around the world. So he definitely does shore up that imperialist American intent. So ballots are stronger, but bullets do make a difference. Yeah. Okay, Sarah. Assassination vacation, uh, you mentioned probably not on the major bucket list, but what are the sites that are related to these killings that, that would be interesting if somebody has a appetite for quirky American history? Well, the Ford's Theater where Lincoln was assassinated fell down and was in rubble, and then the National Park Service rebuilt it as a replica. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Poor old President Garfield, there isn't even a plaque. You know, he was shot in the train station in Washington, D.C., which 
uh, is now the site of the National Gallery of Art. So there's no... There's no mention, just no, an art gallery. There's no... I mean, it's a pretty good museum, mm-hmm. but, you know... But nothing about Garfield. Um, McKinley, you can go to the McKinley Memorial in Canton, Ohio. That's where you can see... I mean, this is... I was always very touched by the wives and what they went through, the widows. And one of the the most moving thing you can see at the McKinley Memorial is Mrs. McKinley's sewing bag. Mm. And she kind of went off the deep end after her husband died and, and spent, you know, her remaining years sitting in a rocking chair knitting bedroom slippers. And they have her sewing bag where she kept her yarn and she had affixed inside a photo of her dead husband. And so every time she reaches for new yarn, she sees his mm. face and she just sits in this chair mm. rocking away her life, knitting these slippers, you know. So it's like mm. it's definitely have a feel for that. There's also in Buffalo, there's the site where the house where Theodore Roosevelt took the oath of office. I mean, the whole Roosevelt part of that story is so TR because when McKinley is shot, Roosevelt as vice president, there's not much to do. So he's hiking in the Adirondacks, and he's on the highest peak of the Adirondacks. And he, he talks some guy, some local, into taking him down the mountain on a buckboard in the middle of the night. So he's just careening down this mountain to get to the train station to go to Buffalo where the president has been shot. And then you can go into the uh, house where he took the oath of office after McKinley wow. died. Sarah Val's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. We're taking a closer look at her travels and discoveries that went into her 2005 book, Assassination Vacation. You can listen to Sarah's earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves, in which she discusses how French General Lafayette helped to actually save the United States and the American colonization of Hawaii. Look in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. You, you mentioned that there's some sort of you know, irreverent money-making and entertaining ways to turn these deaths into into fun and profit. What are some I of mean, the... I'm not a communist, Rick. No. <laughs> <laughs> what are some ways that they... Uh, I mean, the, probably the dumbest one I saw at the aforementioned McKinley Memorial is the McKinley... I don't know if they still make this, but uh, the McKinley Memorial Yo-Yo, which is a <laughs> yo-yo with a picture of a mausoleum on it. Well, that's pretty morbid. Yeah. That's not nice. I mean, there were some unsettling things. Like when I was in Virginia, you know, um, after John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, he he wasn't caught for a few days, and he went through Virginia on on horseback. And near, like, one of the places where he stopped, there's this weird memorial to him kind of on this highway median, and it's sort of shrouded by these shrubs. And it's, it's a memorial to John Wilkes Booth, you know, which is very unsettling. A memorial to John Wilkes Booth. Mm-hmm. It's why? kind of, it's kind of uh, fly by night. Uh, why? Um, some people find him heroic. Is that? I mean, right? have you ever heard the uh, Maryland, my Maryland, uh, the Maryland state song? There's there's a whole section of it that's where it says, you know, six simper, which is what Booth oh, yelled right. when he, he yelled. jumped to the stage and. Right. Part of the song is about assassinating Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln was a very... So he was not... He was a contentious he, guy. He, he was, was not an entirely popular figure. No. A lot of us forget that, that when Lincoln was assassinated, he wasn't, like, everybody's favorite president. Yeah, I mean, one person who had the most to do with that change of uh, fortune besides Lincoln himself was Booth because that dummy shot Lincoln on Good Friday 
And then Lincoln died Saturday morning. And so by Sunday morning, all the sermons were... So all of Easter was turned into a Lincoln memorial. Yeah, and it was all these comparisons between Jesus and Lincoln, which we still kind of have those connotations, I think. In your book, Assassination Vacation, there was an interesting quote. You wrote, The egomania required to be a president or a presidential assassin makes the two types brothers of sorts, the way Las Vegas and Salt Lake City are brothers. Yeah, because they're just kind of company towns devoted to one thing in the desert. You know, one is sin and one is salvation. Yeah, I mean, the the only thing crazier than wanting to kill a president is wanting to be president. You know, I mean, just think about the amount of egomania it takes to want that job Mm. and to think you could do that job. So, mm. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes we have these problematic presidents and that's what we... audacious either yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. Right. And it, that's what we get because we're only ever going to get people to run for that job who think they can do it and who think they should do it, you know, and that's insane. Same thing with the, the assassins, you know, this is a democracy. I mean, the reason presidents weren't really protected before, you know, like after the third assassination, they started getting protection, but... Because they thought assassinations happened in monarchies. They thought in a republic that could never happen. So there wasn't even a concern for protection? No, because they thought the people choose the president, you know. But these assassins, they decide like, um, yeah. That's a sad thing when a society has to. Your vote doesn't count. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you know. Well, when you think about the killers, tell us just, were they all just nutcases that just wanted to kill somebody, or did they have ideals? Were they doing something in a Machiavellian way that they I mean, thought would make the country yeah, better? Yeah, they all had ideals, but yeah, they were all nutcases. We got John I Wilkes mean, Booth. Booth was a real racist. Um, he was a very calculating racist. I mean, the plot to kill Lincoln started just as a plot to kidnap him. But, um, but he, was, he was upset with freeing the slaves. That, but what really set him off was Lincoln gave a speech saying that some of the freed slaves, or as Lincoln put it, some of the intelligent blacks should be given the vote. And for Booth, Booth said, and I quote, that's near citizenship, I will put him through. Whoa, so, so so Booth, he had ideals. I mean, I don't like his ideals, but he did have this, you know. He had a political cause. Yes. Um, How about the guys who killed Garfield and McKinley? I mean, the Garfield guy was really off his rocker, and that one is very complicated, probably too complicated to get into. It had Mm -hmm. to do with internecine Republican Party politics. Hmm. But the McKinley one, I mean, he's sort of the most, he's the saddest one. His name was Leon Mm Sholgosh. He was the son of immigrants, and he was an anarchist, and he was um, opposed to McKinley's imperialist. uh, McKinley is basically the person who turned the Republican Party into what we think of as the Republican Party and its association with, you know, the fat cats. So big business party, less regulations. Yeah. So his assassin was um, infatuated with Emma Goldman. And and it was it was that whole period where. So he was put off by corporate power and, and huge wealth. Yeah. In your book, you talk about the I personally love those things. I don't know what his problem was. <laughs> in your book, you talked about the Lincoln Memorial, and mm-hmm. how it only was dedicated in 1922, so a long Took time a long after. Time. Why did it take so long, and uh, what was the memorial before that? I mean, I would think Lincoln had a memorial before the, the wonderful Lincoln Memorial. I mean, memorial. there's, uh, you know, his tomb in Springfield. It took so long. I mean, it was Washington, for one thing. So there were all these commissions. There were, there were a million commissions where they all tried to decide how Lincoln should be And the remembered. big deal before that was his tomb, not in D.C., but in Springfield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still there, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the Lincoln Memorial kind of 
to me, it sort of embodies Theodore Roosevelt's generation and what they decided. You know, I mean, there's no mention of slaves at the Lincoln Memorial. It's all about the union, you know, Mm -hmm. and making him into this kind of Greek god in this Greek temple, you know. It feels like that when you approach it. Yeah. Quite a powerful memorial. Oh, yeah. It is very moving. I mean, it's my favorite memorial. Me too. Not because of the marble, but because Lincoln's words are etched in the marble. You know, I love walking around in Washington, D.C. after dark when it's just quiet and lonely Mm -hmm. and beautiful flood lighting. And you can go to each of those memorials. They're a nice walk apart. Yeah. All the top memorials and read those just read all of the beautiful words etched into that stone. Yeah, because on one side you have the Gettysburg Address and on the other, the second uh-huh. inaugural. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Vowell. Her book is Assassination Vacation. Before we wrap things up, Sarah, there's all these strange coincidences. Uh, when we were kids, it was always these Lincoln-Kennedy kind of coincidences. Mm-hmm. What did you uncover in the way of just uh, quirky facts that just there's sort of conspiracy people that are in do and I mean the one that's kind of that provided the structure for my book being about these first three assassinations is that Robert Todd Lincoln Abraham Lincoln's eldest son is there for all three of them in that he arrived in DC the day his father was shot and then he was in the train station with James Garfield when Garfield was shot because he was Garfield's secretary of war And then he had just gotten off the train in Buffalo to go to the Pan-American Exposition when McKinley was assassinated at the fair. Wait a second. So Lincoln's oldest son, the only one of his kids that survived, Mm -hmm. was essentially there at the place when all three of these guys were killed. Yeah, so he was jinxed. And then he lived lived to attend the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial, the segregated dedication of the memorial. The segregate and uh, during during yeah. the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial, it was segregated. America, huh? You America. don't get you don't get this <laughs> stuff when you're talking about Denmark, do you? <laughs> if we wanted to say take a a turn, an upbeat turn to end things, mm-hmm. maybe you will agree with this. But one of the things that's in all of my books that the people I depend on are those tour guides and good docents on the ground, the mm-hmm. the locals, and again and again. I come to them for knowledge, and there's something about their hometown pride. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them are volunteers at these places, and they're proud of their town and their town's place in history. And so many times I I just learn things from them that I, I don't learn from books. I mean, they also, because they spend so much time in these places, they really think about these people as people. They're not historical figures or, you know, some cartoonish or godlike, you know, remembrance. To them, they're a person who lived in their town just like they do. So wherever you are and whenever you are, there are real people. My motto is, ask an old guy. Ask an old guy. (laughs) Sarah Val, thank you so much. And a fascinating book, Assassination Vacation. Thank you. Mr. Garfield been shot down, shot down, shot down. Mr. Garfield been shot down low. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Sarah McCormick at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to WMNF Tampa and KNPR Las Vegas for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and link to our guests in the website notes for each week's show. And when you're traveling, find out when other stations air Travel with Rick Steves 
Look for our affiliate listings where it says find a local station at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.